0: Welcome to McKinsey's Discussions in Digital podcast, our series that brings together different voices in the valley to explore interesting issues emerging in the digital world while enjoying some really good food. Today we're going to explore influencer marketing, a topic that has hit the news and public consciousness in the past year, and also an opportunity that marketers of all types are discussing. We're meeting today at Madeira Restaurant at the Rosewood at Sand Hill Resort. I'm Diane Esber, a partner at McKinsey focused on marketing and sales and I'm thrilled to be joined by Katie Freeberg, Head of Growth Marketing at Third Love, and Alessandra Salas, VP of Growth at Ipsy, as well as my colleague Jane Wong, who's an associate partner in our San Francisco office. Katie, I would love for you to introduce yourself, your current role, as well as a little bit of your background.
1: Well, first of all, thanks for having us here. It's very exciting. Um, so I am currently at Third Love, um, heading up growth marketing. Um, if you're not familiar with Third Love, we uh, sell bras. So we uh, make the most comfortable bra you'll ever wear. We really were able to find success uh, through our Fit Finder quiz. So this Fit Finder quiz is really great because it's something, the stats crazy, like 80% of women are wearing the wrong size of bra. And so it's really, um, particularly difficult in the online space to buy a bra when you don't necessarily get to try it on, you don't know what your size is gonna be. Um, And so this has really been our our key to success.
0: Um, Alessandra, we'd love a little bit of your background.
1: Sure, well, thank you so much for
2: having me here. It's a pleasure. Um, So my name is Alessandra Sales, and I'm VP of growth at Ipsy. For those of you who are not familiar with Ipsy, Ipsy is the largest beauty subscription box um, we are present in the U.S. and Canada and we deliver a personalized bag every month to our users uh, that can range from a five travel size sample
0: um, beauty products all the way to full size products. Let's just start with some of the basics. What in your mind is influencer marketing? And how do you think it's changed over the past few years? And maybe Katie, we start with you. The- definition of influencer marketing now is really, um, you know, people who have,
1: who are on social media and have a following. But, um, you know, we've been putting athletes on Wheaties boxes for a really long time. I do think that's essentially influencer marketing, but I think today, in the way we use it, it's just hyper-focused on social media and people who have followings, whether it be because they were you know, on The Bachelor or, you know, on some reality TV show or maybe they actually are a celebrity or maybe they're just, you know, um, the average mom next door. But it's really all about having
0: that following. And how would you say between, say, social media and, you know, other means like blogs, et cetera, do you think they go hand in hand? Can you have one without the other? I think it
1: should be a little broader than just social media. But, you know, when you talk to, you know, most marketing professionals, I think they really focus in on um on social media, but, you know, we think about like YouTubers, like YouTube stars, like those people are influencers as well. And, you know, that that came along, you know, a little before Facebook, let's call it Facebook and, and Instagram. And so, um, yeah, I think influencers can come in all forms.
0: Alessandra, what do you think?
1: So I think this concept of influencer
2: marketing has existed for a long time, because mm-hmm. just like you were mentioning, we were used to the idea of celebrity endorsements, for example, uh, on TV ads or just you know um, traditional marketing campaigns. And I think over the years that concept has evolved, and now has become more um, you know these influencers that are really driving marketing through content. And that's usually done on digital channels, so thinking social or YouTube,
1: Instagram. Now that we've moved into digital channels, is there anything that's fundamentally changed about the concept of influencers or celebrity endorsements as we would call them before?
2: I think what's changed is that a lot of companies these days, especially, you know, DTT brands or, um, even gaming companies. So companies that are very familiar with performance marketing are really transforming the way we are attributing and giving value to influencers' programs. So before, with celebrity endorsements, it was really, really hard to put an ROI behind these investments, and they were usually really big investments, and then the results were really sort of unknown. Versus today, when companies leverage influencers, especially on social media, it it became much, much easier to attach an ROI to these campaigns because you can just place your links, look at view through conversions, and really understand the impact of these ads to your revenue stream.
1: Yeah, and I think to add on to that part of being in the digital space, it kind of open opens up the door for really anyone to be an influencer like it used to be the case that you had to be a big celebrity or you had to you know have a big name behind you to to get one of these types of deals, but really now anyone can be influencers. I mean, we'll I'm sure at some point tonight talk about micro influencers and, you know, these are people that have 1500, 2000, maybe 5000 followers, which is relatively small to you know, compared to some of the celebrities. So I think that's the other unique thing about the digital space is yeah. there's a whole new type of people that can be influencers.
0: Katie, tell me more about that. Like, how would you define a macro-influencer versus a micro-influencer? And then, you know, how do you see them being used differently?
1: So we actually look at influencers by the number of followings, uh, followers that they have. So I think it's something like less than 5,000. I think they're micro. And then, like, 5,000 to... Um, I want to say like 100,000 is, you know, medium size and then, you know, over 500,000 is definitely a macro, but um, we kind of use them in different ways. So the great thing about micro influencers is their content is really authentic and really um, relatable because it's, you know, these are really, you know, these are women that don't have professional photographers. And so when you run these campaigns, they're um, very authentic looking. And so it resonates a lot more with, uh, with, um, you know, your audience. Macro influencers are really interesting because if you can find the right macro influencers that have the same brand messaging and have already been saying the things that your brand has been saying, you know, you can find some really good synergy and you can get a, um, You know a really big brand lift from something like that as opposed to maybe the micro influencers you know when we're thinking about how are we planning out our our month or our quarter we have a certain number of influencers within those different size buckets that we want to have because we know
0: there's a a right balance and alessandra what about it ipsy how do you think about macro influencers versus micro influencers where you see the most value and how they are different
2: ipsy is a little bit of an outlier out there i believe because the company was one of the founders of the company was Michelle Phan, who's one of the most influential YouTubers out there, and so Ipsy was really born as a uh, as an influencer website, and that tradition has remained really um, close to our heart, and so. What we do today is we work with both micro influencers which, similar to Third Love, we consider um, creators with more than 500,000 followers. Uh, so we work with these mega-influencers a few times a year. Uh, for example, when we have to launch a new product or a new campaign, we really try to leverage this, these big names. But then we have an always-on micro-influencers campaign. And so we work with about 8,000 influencers. And it's the way we work with them, it's really organic. We don't ask for money. We don't ask uh, for them to post for us. But we really want to help them grow into become bigger influencers. And so what we do for them is we, we have four uh, studios down in LA. And we um, host about 40 influencers a month. Uh, for free sometimes we also provide photography for them video production etc and they can shoot whatever they need for their own brands for other brands and then um, oftentimes what we do we have these live events where we connect them with the various brands out there and so that gives them the opportunity to meet other people like them as well as Start conversations and you know op- career opportunities with brands. And so what happened um, over the course of you know a few years is that we grew some of these micro influencers from a few thousand followers to multi million followers. So that's it, been a, a really really good success. And also what's interesting is that. We So when we actually ask them to post for us, or we decide to give a monetary reward, we get um, less response than when we don't ask for anything. And so that's actually when we see um, the most success. That's when they really post
0: when, uh, when they're not asked to do so. And it feels really authentic at that point. How do you keep fueling their, their excitement at scale beyond kind of the smaller number that you can help in more of this very active way?
2: Yeah, so we have few live events that are fairly big. So we have our biggest event in New York. It just happened in November. It's called Ipsy Live. And we usually gather about 5,000 people. Um, they're people who are part of the Ipsy community, so users, as well as all sorts of brands out there. So we really give them the opportunity to meet face-to-face with the biggest brands out there. Um, And we do these events about 10 times a year. The other thing that we do that it's been really, really successful is uh, some of these influencers, they want to be entrepreneurs themselves. And they're very interested in the beauty space. And so we have connections with all these factories because we produce Mm -hmm. a mass scale. And um, what we do is we do ipsy collabs with them, right? So we give them the opportunity to manufacture whatever they're thinking about manufacturing. And it's usually some type of makeup products um,
0: through us. What is a campaign that you guys can point to from an influencer perspective that you would say is really successful and why? For us, what works
1: best is connecting with influencers that are already saying our message. They're not necessarily Endorsing our products. You know, and we recently had an event with Katie Sterino. She came to uh, our store in uh, New York. She's um, an influencer, she's known for going into dressing rooms. And trying on like a size 12 and then the size 12 actually doesn't fit and so this is her her whole thing on instagram is like getting retailers to actually produce clothes that are really the size they're supposed to be and so she was a great person to partner with because she um is already saying the same message that we're saying and so we had her come into the store in new york and and we did an interview with her and we had people come in and so it was like a really great event and it was more than just you know, getting an Instagram post, right? It was actually building a relationship with her. For us, it's really important to find people who um, will champion our brand, even if, you know, we're not necessarily saying, hey, will you post on our behalf, for example? And all Alessandra, what about you? So we're really trying
2: to change the way beauty is seen in the world. We don't necessarily want to accept the image of beauty that is put out there by all these big fashion brands and so we worked a lot on personalize it like beauty is what beautiful to you no matter your size your race your um uh your age anything and so what's worked really well was to work with a variety of influencers them being small or or large that they could really um you know, uh, Evangela is what the brand is is really trying to do. We recently launched this this campaign, which is um, we named it "Discover Yourself." We're working with Ciara, mm-hmm. singer, uh, and some medium to nano influencers that are really diverse. So, for example, we connected with um, a transgender. A woman. And so working with all these different type of people has worked really well because then we could bring it back to performance marketing, really target different type of audience based off these different type of influences, right? So um, one of our most successful target segments on Facebook is actually the transgender community. And so having
1: an advocate for that community is proven to be super successful for us. And how do you source those? What is your pipeline? We have one person who works on influencer marketing. That's all she does. And she does a lot of the sourcing herself. So she's looking for, you know, the women that are talking about body positivity. Of course, we work with, um, you know, some talent that is represented by agencies. And then we'll get leads from the agents. But um, it's mostly doing our own sourcing. Um, The person who set up our influencer marketing program at Third Love, uh, she came from an agency in... LA and she has a ton of connections and so she really opened up the door for, you know, some of this talent that we might not have had access to when we first started doing the, the influencer marketing program.
2: Yeah, similarly, we do all the sourcing in-house. I think one of the challenges for us is it's it's hard to maintain such a big net and such a big number of of uh, of creators. And so of course it's not that everything is done manually we rely on you know some influencers tools etc but there is a lot of work uh, that we put behind uh, and so our team is fairly ra- large uh, so i think our creator plus experiential team who actually takes care of all these live events etc it's probably over 10 people team
1: one other thing i just thought of the, of an issue that we've Uh, run into only once or twice is um, managing comments from followers of the the influencers that we use. So for example, we had an issue where um, an influencer had some commenters say something and then she responded back in a way that was like really not okay. It was just rude and unprofessional and it didn't represent the way Third Love, you know, would expect someone representing the brand to 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 respond and so we basically asked her to take down the post that can be tricky and it can certainly be a risk to the brand because you don't want to risk the brand reputation because one of the influencers you're working with um is not very nice on social media no i think you brought up a great point actually because
2: um there was recently this big i think it was maybe a few months ago. Uh, James Charles, Big Scandal in the Influencer's World, right? Yes, I remember this. So So for our listeners, can you give give a little background here? I can't remember this story really well, but it's this young guy who has millions of followers across Instagram and YouTube who got into some sort of fight with another big influencer. And I can't remember exactly the reason why, but it just blew up internationally. And so thinking about how dangerous could uh, potentially be to really get attached to one particular influencer or work you know, full time with, with a set of influencers. Because oftentimes, these people are really young. So they might just say something that they don't entirely mean, or they might just behave in a way that doesn't represent the brand. So you always want to make sure that you collaborate with many, but don't get too attached to uh, most of them, right?
1: Yeah, and if I remember correctly, there was a brand sponsoring him that pulled their sponsorship, if I remember correctly. Like, it was a pretty big deal. Do you think influencer marketing can scale? Yes, but I think it's, it's getting a little bit harder,
2: right? Because in the early days, companies were going after followers, and so they were mostly engaged with micro-influencers. Mm-hmm. And the beauty about engaging with micro-influencers is that it really gives your brand a lot of visibility in front of many, many, many eyes. But then what you see oftentimes is that it doesn't pay off because this audience might not be as engaged, might not really relate to that particular influences, and so the down-the-final conversions are really not there. So companies started optimizing for quality over quantity, but what that entails is that it, it takes a lot more resources internally to scale, with micro-influencers.
1: The scale is very hard, especially when you want a really authentic message, particularly coming from some of the micro-influencers. You need, either need to be working with agencies or you need to have an in-house team that can, that can manage that, but it is certainly a uh, still very manual process, I would say. So scaling is going to be hard. But I think brands you know, need to put the, put the effort behind it because it's so valuable. I mean,
0: what better way to get a really authentic story out than to, to work with an influencer? So let's think about maybe you're a larger company, you're a more traditional marketing organization, and you're trying to move into the influencer space in a bigger way. What capabilities and what kind of advice would you give them on things to build as they move into this new kind of modern marketing world that includes influencers?
2: Well, first of all, I would think that even though they might be late in the game, they have a huge advantage, right? Because oftentimes we have to introduce our brands to influencers versus if I'm thinking about in Nike or in Adidas and Apple, everybody is already aware of the brand. And so naturally you've got creators that they're gonna ask to be part of that influencers campaign. So Mm -hmm. while it might, they might feel they're leading the game. I still think they have a huge advantage over smaller brands. Um, And I also think that they have a huge advantage because naturally some people, they might just feel really,
1: really close to that brand. I think that bigger brands might be at a disadvantage in the sense that they are so big that, you know, when they do partnerships or when they work with influencers that, you know, it's very clear it was a paid partnership right and so I think they're somewhat at a disadvantage because they aren't able to drive that authenticity that comes with you know smaller influencers smaller brands um and and so I think it must I mean imagine like a coke for example like who are they gonna partner with where it feels like really authentic but you know to the to their credit you know they have the ability to build out larger teams so that they can um, run bigger programs. When you think about the future of influencer marketing in the next, let's say, five years, what are you most excited about? You first. <laughs> Alessandra.
2: I'm excited to see how it's gonna evolve because I actually think we went from macro influencers to micro-influencers. I eventually see this evolving into more community space where like, influencers and creators are really gonna be the people um, Close to you, to so mm-hmm. your your family, your community, your friends. Um, so I think that's going to be interesting to see how it's going to evolve over time. But you know, in my dreams, what I what I see is is, is kind of like a Uber, or Lyft, um, you know, type of environment where everyone can get a job out of, or you know, can get a living. Out of uh, this word-of-mouth effect, um, I don't know exactly how it will evolve, but I think it's going to become more and more micro as we move forward.
1: Yeah, I think I'm probably most excited to see how um, the platforms change based on influencer marketing. You know, particularly with Instagram shopping, right? And um, you know, just with like referral programs, like Like to Know it you know, where influencers don't have to go directly with the brands, they can go through an affiliate route. Like, I'm, I'm just really excited to see how the space is going to shift based on either new platforms or, or new technology, because I think, I think that's going to happen in the next five years. On the converse, what are you most worried about? Or what challenges do you think are most important for the industry to overcome? I think as it becomes more saturated, it's much harder for brands to differentiate themselves. You know, D2C brands have used this as a way to to really build their their brands and their voices, and as bigger companies come into the space and are also using influencers, D2C brands are going to be forced to figure out the next new thing, and and that's the beauty of D2C is they typically are very scrappy and you know behave a little differently because they can be nimble and move faster. Um, but I think it's going to be very saturated and much harder for smaller brands to stand out. I agree with that, and to
2: add to, you know, what I mentioned previously, if it's gonna if the trend is becoming more and more micro, I think the other danger is that people, they might become less authentic because they're going to start seeing that monetary rewards. Um, and so I think the challenge is how much longer will the audience believe that that message is, is, is a real message.
0: I want to thank you all again for joining me tonight for our discussions in digital. This has been such a treat and I've really enjoyed myself. For our listeners, please tweet us your ideas. Who do you want to hear from and what do you want to hear about? To learn more about what we're publishing, check out our site, McKinsey on Marketing and Sales. Thanks again.